I'm going to use the rest of my years in this wheelchair um, to, to do everything I can to make life easier, to make life better for other people with disabilities, especially during those recent hurricanes and, and uh, yeah. national tragedies we've had. And welcome to a Lighthouse Faith Podcast, Moving Forward in Truth and Love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel. You know, over the last few weeks, uh, we as a world, I guess, or maybe on this hemisphere, has have been dealing with natural disasters, hurricanes, Harvey, Irma, Maria, Jose, and more, plus the earthquake in Mexico. There are thousands of people who are trying to get their lives back in order and just simple things like electricity, phone service, access to food and clean water. But... You know, many times in the aftermath of disasters, there is a class of people who are oftentimes overlooked. And I never really thought about this until um, my next guest actually approached me about this. Um, These are people with disabilities. You know, the Bible talks about the care of the blind and the lame and all of those things. And we sort of kind of take it as information, but not always as something to direct our actions. Um, My guest here is... uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. She is an extraordinary advocate for the disabled. And I just want to read a little bit off her website because it really explains her background. A diving accident in 1967 left Johnny Erickson with then 17, a quadriplegic at 17 years old, in a wheelchair without the use of her hands. After two years of rehabilitation, she emerged with new skills and a fresh determination to help others in similar situations. And, Johnny, I just wanted to give them that background because a lot of people don't know you right? and don't know you know, what you've gone through. But when I'm looking at you now, this, this smile on your face and the positive spirit you have, it's just incredible the kind of faith that you have. Well, Lauren, I can't believe that this year marks 50 years that I've been in my wheelchair. Um, it was five decades ago I took that dive. And, you know, it's like a snap of the fingers. I I was reading in the Bible the other day, 1 Peter 5.10, where it says, after you have, quote, suffered a little while, the God of all grace will restore you. And Lauren, looking back, for some reason, it only feels like a little while. And and I I don't know if it's because I've learned to trust God in the midst of all these hardships or what, but but God has made it feel um, like like a wisp of smoke, a, a fading vapor. And uh, so I'm, I'm going to use the rest of my years in this wheelchair um, to, to do everything I can to make life easier, to make life better for other people with disabilities, especially during those recent hurricanes and, and uh, yeah. national tragedies we've had. But it, was, it was a call to action to all of us, wasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, you see so much of the human spirit, people getting out there, wanting to help people who cannot help themselves um, and, you know, sending food, sending monies, whatever they can do, people are sending that. But what is it life like for the disabled when there's a natural disaster like that? Well, I think all of us saw when we were watching Fox News or, or, or other news outlets, we saw incredible visual images of, of rescuers lifting elderly people out of their wheelchairs and, and walking them through the water, just holding them in their arms. Children with disabilities. Uh, we heard that horrific story of uh, one of the nursing homes. I think it was in Beaumont, Texas, which the floors were flooded. And then another nursing home where the air conditioning went out and people lost their lives. It, we, when people with disabilities are stuck in a natural disaster, they're mm-hmm. often overlooked because it is the strong, it's the able, it's the quick, it's the responsive who can you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, get out the door, um, you know, move through the water, uh, 
move furniture, kick down doors. Right, right. And it's people with disabilities who are stuck in those back bedrooms. So, Lauren, when, when I was sitting there watching Fox News and these incredible images, I thought, oh, my goodness, we've got to do something. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we connected with the mayor's office in Houston, Texas, and um, they told us, yes, yes, we need wheelchairs. And that was evident because you could see the people with disabilities and those with elderly, right. uh, and those who were impaired, who were elderly, being, being lifted out of, their, uh, out of their nursing homes and onto these boats to be rescued leaving their mobility equipment behind. Wow. But, you know, also people who were actually able-bodied before now are injured, perhaps, and then need those kinds of uh, things. Yes. Um, In fact, uh, we were able to send 500 wheelchairs to Beaumont and Houston. And actually, the the, the Mayor Taylor of of Houston was able to come out and help distribute those wheelchairs with us. We did it through various churches uh, in partnership with um, Samaritan's Purse and just got on the ground to find out where these needs actually were and uh, were able to provide even more wheelchairs um, uh, in Florida as well. So it's exciting to be able to think creatively in a natural Mm -hmm. disaster. I think for all of us, it's a call to action. When we see those visual images, when we're watching TV, think what can I do? Right, right. What, what can I give? How can I help? I was so impressed that there were guys who, who you know, came in from, from upper Louisiana and Arkansas pulling their boats behind their trucks, <laughs> you know, ju- just so that people had, had more uh, uh, freeway and more access through those waterways that became uh, streets that became waterways. And it was just wonderful to see a nation pull together, come together. And, and we were just there to help the disabled and the elderly. Uh, that, that's really what people love to do. And I want to... You know, just a little bit of background on the idea of disabled because, you know, and then under the best conditions, the disabled still have um, a um, a hard, you know, road to hoe. I mean, I was just reading some um, statistics and showing that the poverty rate for people with disabilities is 47%. You've got 90% of children who have a disability. They don't attend school. Um, Now, one in three employers say they do not hire people with disabilities because they cannot perform required job tasks. That, mm. that means that if you're disabled, you're almost how many times more likely to, 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 be, to live in poverty because of that? Absolutely. And for persons with disabilities, even if they are qualified, it's getting up in the morning. Yeah. It's having personal care assistance, personal care services. It's, it's accessible transportation. There's so many other factors besides just being qualified to hold down a job or being able to wheel your chair through the front door, you got to get up in the morning. you got to right. have transportation. you you got to have somewhere, somehow, some way to get around. And uh, I think that's part of the challenge for many people with disabilities. They are qualified, but just getting to the job, yeah. just getting up in the morning can be a big challenge. Also, uh, I, I want to say one quick word about our, our, uh, our school system. You know, sometimes people with disabilities, I think they are just, shepherded through the school system mm-hmm. without really the proper examinations to help them reach their fullest educational potential. Yes. And so people with disabilities are being graduated with master's degrees, and, and some just don't have the skill set right. to actually put it into practice. And so, uh, uh, yes, we've got the uh, IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Yes, we have the Americans with Disabilities Act. But there's so much still about the heart and the compassion of of, of helping a person reach his fullest potential rather than just, uh, you know what, 
she's disabled. And right, I, right. And we've got to, you know, graduate this kid. So just, just, just push him through. There's just this assumption that, you know, if you're disabled or if you, you know, especially something like um, cerebral palsy, um, people think that, you know, your brain's not functioning, you know, that you're somehow not as smart. Right. But the brain is functioning. Absolutely, it's just that the body is not connecting neurologically with right. with the limbs, and that's all that's happening. I got to tell you a quick story because our ministry at Johnny and Friends we hold retreats for families affected by disability all across the United States every summer, and in developing nations. And I was at one of our family retreats with my husband Ken, and there was a young man there with his elderly father. Uh, the young man was named uh, James, and he had cerebral palsy. And I noticed that a lot of the younger kids with disabilities were out and about doing the activities. But James kind of lagged behind. So I wheeled up to him to have a conversation with him. And I said, James, what's your favorite part about family retreat? And his reply was, okay, I thought I don't quite understand him. So I called (laughs) over his volunteer. Sir, can you please help me understand what James is saying? And again, I asked him the question. And again, the response was, okay, so let's look for James's father. There he is. Call the dad over, and I said, can you help me understand what James is saying? Because I'm asking him about his favorite part of family retreat. And when James replied again, his father laughed, and he said, well, God, of course. He's saying God. And I I just started laughing. Of of course, like, hello, like, duh. (laughs) Of course, that's his favorite part of family retreat. So, yes, and and James was laughing. He was splitting his sides with laughter. And I thought to myself, God bless that man. Yeah, because he was yeah. so patient with me, and here he took it in great humor. And if I were him, I think I would have been so frustrated. I would have fallen apart. I would have. Right, right. What's right. the matter with you, lady? Can't you understand me? And yet we just do not credit a lot of people with disabilities with the grace and the dignity. Well, we don't give them the human respect that is that is totally due them because we just have so many preconceived notions, or don't give them the the time, or we mm-hmm. are impatient and. So there's lots to learn from people like James. I want to talk about something else, um, some life value issues that, that's on, I know, your mind, and you're a real advocate about this, and because it's growing and growing and growing, this um, assisted suicide um, bills that have been around the country, and what people don't understand is that assisted suicide, uh, doctor-assisted suicide, is actually legal in Washington, D.C. Um, and in many other states. California, Colorado, Oregon, Vermont. Um, and Washington, um, you've got Massachusetts, I think, that that's actually considering the bill right now. And other states as well. And other states. Uh, what's happening in the world and why has this become such a, um, I, I hate to say the word wonderful, but that somehow this, this is a solution to eliminating suffering? Well, there's so much to it. And I think it is a radicalization of personal rights. You know, when the um, Roe versus Wade decision was, was handed down in 1973, um, the court ruled that there was inher- an inherent, quote, right to privacy within the U.S. Constitution. And people took that and they ran with it. And so I think what we're seeing now is a radicalization of one's, quote, sense of personal rights. Mm-hmm. But, but I sometimes wonder if we have twisted the definition of rights. We no longer... They're, they're, no longer, they're no longer moral claims that we can make on society. Uh, for us, rights are willful determinations that we, that we uh, dress up with a showy kind of dignity uh, by calling them rights. And, and all they are is our, our, our stiff, stubborn-necked 
mm-hmm. I want my way. And, and, yeah. and then the exercise of rights in America become nothing more than a national competition about who's more victimized than who. So, so I think that is at the basis of it. But another factor is that so many people think you're better off dead than disabled. Wow. So many people have fears of the future. They have fears of dying. They have fears of pain. They fear being a burden to their families. Well, fear is not a good reason to, um, to ask the state uh, to have a doctor assist you with a, a lethal dose uh, in order to end your misery. Fears can be dealt with. Fears can be addressed. And uh, so many people now um, with disabilities, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned, are fearful about their future. Right. Uh, a person gets a diagnosis of, of multiple sclerosis, and they, they get a few encroaching symptoms, and before you know it, fears arise, and they're already planning their doctor-assisted death. Well, l- let's, not, let's not change the definition of compassion into three grams of phenobarbital or fentanyl patches on, on one's chest. Mm-hmm. L- let's, let's, let's make compassionate response be to, um, to take that person up out of social isolation, to ascribe positive meaning. Uh, in their pain and in their disabilities, to to pour more resources into good pain management therapies. Um, these these, are, these right. are practical and good and compassionate ways to address people's quote fears. Fear should never be the basis for rational social policy. And and what we have here is fear of the future, fear of dying, fear of disability, fear of being a burden, and and we have translated those fears into social policy and that's just that's just not right. You know, I'm listening to you and a lot of people don't understand don't can't see you the way I see you. You're sitting here in a wheelchair, you're quadriplegic. You really have no functional use of your of your arms or your legs and and uh, you rely on so many people really for just basic things. And you can make this sort of claim and saying, you know, my life is saved because somebody said there was something greater that God's love still had purpose in my life, regardless of what happened to me. And not just God's love, human love. I think we forget the value and the importance of relationships, how much connection to, to people can make a difference. Um, when I was first injured and despairing and wanted so desperately to end my life, I'm glad there were no right-to-die laws around back then. But it was people who kept me connected to reality, people who lifted me up out of despair. And they showed me compassion. Come means with. Passion means suffering. With suffering. They were with me in my suffering. They journeyed with me through the, through the rehab process. And, and even when I got out into the mainstream of life, they were people who stood in line with me at the registrar's office at the University of Maryland. They were people who provided me a little bit of accessible transportation until, you know, I could find my own way. I mean, they were people who just cast a vision for me when I was too weak to cast it for myself. And I, I think if we could just have that kind of response, mm-hmm. not just Christians, not just the church, not just the religious community, but if all of us could... Well, as we saw on TV with Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma, people jump into action. Right. People reach out and help. People see a need, and they become the Good Samaritan. They never envisioned that they would do that, but when the need arises, they don't shirk back and think somebody else will take care of it, but they step forward and, um, and put a little bit of feet on their faith. There is a um, young lady, young girl, 14 years old, I believe, was in, in England who, was it England, um, who uh, committed suicide because she has a 
I'm thinking brain tumor or a cancer of some kind of... That's not uncommon. It's happening in Belgium. It's happening in the Netherlands. And uh, my concern is that with the physician-assisted suicide laws that are even uh, on the books here in the United States, it won't take much, for, Lauren, for somebody with ALS or in the advanced stages of multiple sclerosis to challenge the court definition of, quote, terminal illness. You what know- is a terminal illness? And, and then when that door is open... Then, uh, then, such as we are seeing in Belgium and in the Netherlands, then people can ask for doctor-assisted death purely because they find their lives unbearable. And, and I mean, and that becomes a slippery slope. But before we get to that issue, there in Australia, we're talking about sort of this national idea. Uh, the supporters of assisted suicide, they're pretty lobbying hard. Dying with dignity, um, they found that 73% of Australians support voluntary assisted suicide. However, which is, I think, very – any per- person looking at that statistic thinking, no, that can't be quite right. But this is how they do the polls. This is the problem when you do polls and you see these numbers out there. Uh, it was conducted online, and the question was kind of front-loaded. It said, if someone with a terminal illness who is experiencing unrelievable suffering asks to die, should a doctor be allowed to assist them to die? Now, that's a front-loaded question. Yes. But you answer that question in a way that I think that really um, sheds light on really what's happening here. Absolutely. Um, If a person is suffering, uh, we are so used to following the cultural norm. We want to medicate it. We want to drug it. We want to escape it. We want to avoid it. We want to institutionalize it. We want to divorce it. We want to do everything but live with it. We need people to show others how to, quote, live with it, how to get up in the morning and arrive. And and what a difference that can make when we set examples for each other. You know, I'm thinking of the movie Braveheart. I I don't know how many of our listeners have seen that, but uh, there's one scene in which the Scots are just fallen apart because they see the size of the English army on the battlefield. And for them, the, the, the battle's already over. They, right, they, they think right. they've already lost. But up from the rear comes Wallace riding on horseback with his face painted blue. And at, just, just, just by him arriving brings heart to the Scots and they take the field and they win the day just with one person. And, and, you know, we look at these statistics and we look at, at the trends of, of uh, physician-assisted suicide and we think we're helpless. We think we can't do anything. Well, if, if Wallace could ride to the front and if that could energize an entire nation to take the field and win the day, then we can certainly win the day. And we need to be that power of example to other people to say, you know what, suffering is hard. My disability is tough. It's not easy. But I'm going to persevere. I'm going to demonstrate courage through it. Because people who, people who endure greater conflicts always have something to say to those who suffer lesser conflicts, which is why I'm so adamant about, mm-hmm. about the fact that, you know what, you can be disabled. You can, have, you, can have, uh, you can have quadriplegia, paraplegia. You could have cerebral palsy, osteogenesis imperfecta, spina bifida. You could have autism. You can have all kinds of different disabilities. But... You can do it. You can make it. You can arrive. And um, it just takes a few people around you to provide that support and one or two casting a vision when you're too weak to cast it for yourself. And you are moving forward. You are going onward and upward. Um, I want to talk about the slippery slope because this is something that I've seen happen 
not even just from the last five years, but from the last 40 to 50 years. I mean, I'm, and when you go back and actually understand that, you know, 50 years ago when you had your accident, there were people around you, a support system that says no life is still worth living. And that was part of a worldview that it kind of existed then. Right. It was a moral common consensus. Right, right. Now you've got a slippery slope that sort of invaded the community and the culture that says, you know, we shouldn't be suffering, so let's eliminate it. Or things that aren't convenient, that are a burden to society, should be eliminated. And that, that is the slippery slope. You well, you, you are describing our culture to a T. And it's not just a national culture here in America. Unfortunately, it's become a global culture. Uh, everything is about cost and, and cost effectiveness. Everything is about comfort. Everything is about convenience. And, and uh, families just, quote, aren't families anymore. We don't know how to, we don't know how to deal with each other in a family unit. Um, we, we walk away from each other. We, we uh, alienate each other. We refuse each other help. But the, the, the family is, a, is, is not just a social contract. It, it, is, a, it is a unit in which you, you, it, you, you're supposed to feel burdened by another. You're supposed to feel put upon by yes. another. That's just the way families work. And, and we don't know how to do that, not only in families, we don't know how to do that in our neighborhoods, in our communities. And so that isolated sense of radical personal rights, all based on cost-effectiveness, convenience, and comfort, alienates us further from one another. Our family units crumble apart. Neighborhoods don't know how to be neighbors to each other. And we, this, is where we, this is where we are. This is where we've come. And I think that's what the beauty of what we saw in Houston and Beaumont, Texas with those hurricanes. It was so evident, Lauren, for any of us who watched the news. When, yeah. we, when we saw what happened, when we saw what, the way people practiced brotherhood with its sleeves rolled up, it, it was so inspiring to us all. We don't need a national war to pull us together as a nation. We, we just need a, a couple of neighborhood tragedies once or twice. I, I don't know. It's a shame <laughs> that those Let's things... Let's not hope for those. Just right. No, we don't hope for, for them. It's like a pulling together. But it, but it showed us it showed us the lost vision, the vision of what it means to be an American, what it means to be a good citizen, what it means to be a good neighbor. We've lost that vision. We've lost what it means even to know how to practice our Christianity on the streets. We've lost that vision, and yet we saw it so vividly um, during those hurricanes. So... I, th- I think the national character can be regained. I really do. Uh, it, it's why I'm so grateful for people like, um, well, you know, Franklin Graham, who has called this nation to prayer. You know, it, yeah. it starts with prayer. When mm-hmm. people, people often ask me, Johnny, how did you pull yourself up out of depression? And I'll say, well, I'm sorry, but I don't think it was me. It, it, it was the power of other people's prayers and their practical love. Prayer and practical love is what changed me, and I think that's what would change our national character, which w- w- would help us reclaim our national character. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the power of prayer and, and the power of just putting into action our love. Well, Johnny, I want to thank you so much. Um, for people who want to help out with your efforts to help the disabled in the aftermath of the storms, where do they go? How do they help you? Well, you can visit us at johnnyandfriends.org. That's J-O-N-I-A-N-D. F-R-I-E-N-D-S, johnnyandfriends.org, and uh, you can find out more about our, our efforts to um, relieve uh, some of the suffering that's going on with the hurricanes right now uh, on our news event page. And um, if you want to volunteer with us, mm-hmm. oh, my goodness, we've got these family retreats all over the country. We're looking for people who, who can practice a little bit of that 
either brotherhood or Christianity with the sleeves rolled up and just push the wheelchair for a week of a kid with disability or, or you know, be with them uh, while mom and dad take a break. It's a great five-day time together where uh, we have hands down slam dunk off the charts fun <laughs> and fellowship and times together, wheelchair square dancing and you know, getting in the swimming pool. It's just wonderful. But we need volunteers. Okay. And our uh, our... Our 2018 uh, rostrum of family retreats will uh, be up the end of this year on our website. So check out one in your region and come and volunteer. All right. Johnny Erickson, Tyler, thank you so much. Johnny and friends, check it out. Um, I'm Lauren Green with the uh, Lighthouse Faith Podcast. And uh, just I can't say enough wonderful things about Johnny. And I just I really can't. I mean, (laughs) you are just an amazing uh, woman and such an inspiration and um, you know, God has raised you up, I think, mm-hmm. at this time because he knew what was coming well, you <laughs> in know, this world. People often say to me, well, you're the exception, Johnny. You're, you're unusual. Okay, I might be, but I'm going to use every ounce of effort that I possibly can squeeze out of my paralyzed body to make it better for other people. That is the national, that's an aspect of the national character I was talking about, where we all can and should live. All right. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for listening to Lighthouse Faith Podcast. I'm Lauren Green.